Well, good morning. I am thankful that you're here today. You know, I've had my eye on this Sunday for the last five years. This Sunday. You know, it's, it's interesting because many people have anticipated that the spotlight of the world, of our nation, would be on Tulsa this weekend. And it most definitely is. And, 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 and I'm so thankful for gifted leaders in our church. Uh, uh, Casey and Debbie did a great job putting together this historically accurate picture of the Tulsa Race Massacre. A hundred years ago this weekend, that event took place, about nine minutes from here. And, and you know, it's important for us to, to acknowledge that and to recognize that dark moment in our history in our city, though none of us were there when that happened, the reality is um, I'm thankful that we know what took place. And what, what's out there in the foyer is, is uh, if you walk through it, you'll notice the, the tragedy of the moment. You, you can't help but notice the response of, of, um, of, of the mature believers and, and those that, that, that missed it. And, 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 you know, it's sad for me to walk through that and look at the response of some pastors in this city that uh, responded the way they did. But, but I'm glad I know how they responded. I'm glad I got to confront that. You know, it's in that as you walk through it, you also notice something. You also notice the faithfulness of God because, um, because you know, every time sin impacts the world, God's, God calls people to the moment, and people step up in the moment. And in that display, you see some of God's people that really stepped up. I'm thankful that I got to read about our, our Oklahoma Baptist paper. Do you realize that we have an Oklahoma Baptist paper? We do, and we've had it for a long time. And in and, and that moment, in a hundred years ago, in the Oklahoma Baptist paper, a pastor writes about the tragedy of that moment, calling people to repentance and calling people back to the Word of God. I'm glad we get to see that. I'm, I'm glad that we get to see these believers in the Red Cross because that's a gospel-centered, uh, that has a gospel-centered root. And, and people in the Red Cross came into this city and said, we are going to respond to this moment. And I'm grateful that, that, that you get to, we get to learn the, the, the lessons from that tragic event. And I'll tell you, it's, it's very important to learn from those events. And, and the truth is, we know this, confronting both personal and societal mistakes of the past, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to face those mistakes, and, and it's not all, always easy. And, but, but, but here's the deal. It's good to remember the mistakes of our past. God's people, the Bible is full of, it's, it's so very honest about, about the mistakes of God's people. And, and it's, I've just finished in, uh, in my one-year Bible today, I, I, I started the book of Kings. And, and I've just finished David, and he's coming in for a landing in his life. And when you look at David, he has so many mistakes, and the Bible's so incredibly honest. And, and we've learned this, this historic wisdom Right? If you've studied history in school, you, you know that that historic wisdom, if you don't take time to remember your history, you're destined to repeat it. And I'll tell you what 
that history shows is something that must never be repeated in our nation, in our, in our city. And you know, as a pastor, I'll, I'll be honest with you, this, this won't surprise you, but I don't always get everything right. But when it comes to serving the Lord today and in the coming days, let me tell you something, we, we need to get it right as a church, as individuals. To, and, 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 you know, when I, I love the song that Joe just led us in. Because here's what I'm reminded of. The, the theology of that song is deep. Because it reminds us that the Lord is with us, that, that God is who he says he is, and that God will complete his work in us until he comes, till he returns. And, and, and you know, uh, last week we started this doctrine of humanity. And we, we started a, a challenging look, a thoughtful look into what the Bible says about human nature and how God created humanity. And, 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 and we need to understand the Imago Dei, which means that, that man was created in the image of God. And, and, and that happened from the very beginning. From the very beginning, God made man in his image. In Genesis 1 and, and 2, it points to this incredible fellowship that man had with God. Of, of all the creatures that God made, we were the only ones made in his image. And, and man in God's image means that, that man is like God. Man represents God to the world. But you know what? Tragically, as, as, that, as that doctrine unfolds in Scripture, we saw last week how, how we were created in the image of God. But as we continue to think about the image of God and humanity, uh, tragically, Satan came. And, he, and we know the story. Genesis 3 tells the story. Satan tempted man with sin. And you know what? Man took the bait. You know, sometimes we still take the bait. And, and the fall of, of humanity didn't, thankfully, it didn't cause the image of God to be lost, thankfully. But, but can I tell you, the image of God has been distorted. And we see this. And, and, and the fall led to some terrible consequences in humanity. The moral purity was lost when the fall happened. Um, sinful character, that became this natural inheritance. We, we inherited this sinful nature from Adam. And it's been passed down as a, as a disease in, every, in the heart of every human being. And this is why we, we live in this world that says, oh, mankind is inherently good. We're not inherently good. We were born into sin, and that sin must be confronted and must be dealt with. And this is the, 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 one of the biggest lies of humanity, that, that mankind is good by himself. No, we need a Savior. But when the fall happened, intellect got, it got corrupted by lies and misunderstanding. Speech began to dishonor the Lord in the fall relationships started to reflect selfishness. And, and honestly, as we look at the Romans 1 reality, uh, the list keeps growing. We keep inventing ways to do evil. And that's in the heart of man. I want you to look at a clear... Now, we're going to be in James chapter 2 today for, for the most part, but I want you to flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Look at, it, look at this verse. This struck me as I've been wrestling through this, 
this doctrine. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. He says in chapter 7, verse 29, See, this alone I found that God made man upright. But then you see the impact of the fall in the next part of that verse. But they sought out many schemes. See, the fall ha- uh, continues to have so many challenging effects on humanity. And, and, and as we understand our Bibles, one of the effects of humanity is the distortion of the image of God in one another. And, and, and one of the greatest distortions of the Imago Dei is the sin of partiality. And that's, that's where we begin to segregate and separate into different groups. And, 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 and sin causes us to think that the different people have different values for various reasons. And, and because of the, of the distortion of God's image in the fall, events like the Tulsa Race Massacre, you know what's tragic is, it, is, is these events dot our historical landscape. And you can just do a historical timeline from the beginning of humanity and you see dots like that massacre that repeat itself over and over again. And it's a result of the fall and it, it's, a, it's a result of man falling into sin. And, 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 the, and, and the Bible is clear that even though man is sinful, we're still, we still have some likeness of God that we can see in one another. And, and this is why understanding this doctrine is so important. But, but the fall of, it impacted humanity. Sin took root and it has, a, it has a price. And man, the effects are devastating in our, as we constantly battle our sinful nature. And, 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 and so turn to James 2. Now, uh, as you look at James 2, uh, I want us to notice one more jump, James 3. Look over at James 3 verse 9, because you, you see this effect of the image of God in humanity as, as James moves in chapter 3, and he starts talking about the tongue. And James is such an incredibly practical book. It's such a confrontational book. But in chapter 3, he talks about the tongue. Look at verse 9. He says, with the tongue, we bless the Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And this shows the the difficulty, the tendency of humanity to look at a brother and sister made in the image of God and we curse them. That's a human result of the fall. And, and, And today, on this day that I've been looking forward, look anticipating the last five years, I think it's, Important for us today to understand the moment, understand the historical moment. And, and James 2 helps us confront the sin of partiality, which is one of the most significant ways that the image of God has become distorted among lost, the lost and the saved. And so let's look at it. Turn with me to James 2 and let's stand and read Verses 1 through 13, if you would. It says this. My brothers, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, 
If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the, uh, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are, are not the rich ones who oppress you are not the, are, are, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For you said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, and when you look at this passage, it's, it's, it's confrontational, it's uncomfortable. And, and, and you know, here, here's, the, here's the point. We, we have to learn to hate sin. One of our struggles in, in, in the church and in, in life is we come to go, oh, let's, my sin's not as bad as your sin. And, and God moves us as, as we grow in our walk with the Lord to confront the sin in our own life. Let, let me tell you something. If you want some mental sweat, some theological sweat, uh, uh, you got to write this guy's name down. John Owen. You heard of John Owen? Okay, uh, he wrote a book, and I'm going to tell you the title, and you're never going to remember it. Uh, but you could find it if you just Googled John Owen. The, the title of his book is called The Nature, Power, and Prevalency of the Remainders of Indwelling Sin in Believers. That's the title of his book. Now, he wasn't trying to make any friends with that title, okay? It was, uh, but you could find it on, on the mortification of sin in, 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 on Google. But, but, but you know what he talks about is that, is that as believers, we've got to hate sin. And point number one, if you're following along, is sin warps the image of God in every person. James 2 talks about this. It warps the image of God in every person. And, and we've got to learn to hate sin. We tend to um, not want to confront the sin in our own lives. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, um, hey, when, be careful to not look at the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own. And, and Jesus warned the Pharisees and, and the religious about, hey, you've got to be careful about the log that's in your own eye. And, and, and we've got to recognize that sin corrupts us. Sin corrupts us more than we think. And, and this is in every way, in every aspect of our lives, we have got to be a people that hate sin. And, and we have a tendency to want to flirt with sin. We have a tendency to say, let me get as close to sin as I can before I fall off. And, and you know, it's like when I was a youth minister, teenagers would ask me, hey, Chris, how far is too far? And I would say, that's a dumb question. 
That'd be like saying to Robin, hey, Robin, when, before I marry you, how bad can I treat you before you divorce me? She'd be like, I ain't marrying you, if that's the question you're asking. We need to hate sin. We need to stay away from sin. We flee from sin. Sin corrupts more than we think. Sin distorts more than we want to admit. And this is the reality of sin, that we've got to hate it. We've got to flee from it. We've got to run from sin. Sin destroys worse than we can imagine. And this is the reality of our lives. Sin is devastating for believer and unbeliever alike. Now, as a believer, we're rescued. God saves us. He doesn't leave us. But, but let me tell you something. So, many, tr- so much trouble comes in the heart of believers when we flirt with sin. We've got to learn to hate it. It's like this old saying that is famous. It's been around forever. My youth minister told me, it says, sin, will take you, sin takes you further than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin has a price tag higher than you want to pay. We need to memorize that. That's wisdom from, from Scripture. Sin is devastating. Now, as you look back at James 2, we see point number two is this, that prejudice and following Jesus will never go together. This tendency to, to let's, let's separate, let's, let's, let's uh, get into different, uh, these groups that, that are isolated. That's sociology, yes, but that's a result of sin. That we tend to look at somebody and say, this is my people, you're not my people. And God wants us to see, no, all humanity was created in the image of him. Look at what he says in verse 1, chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now think of the magnitude of that statement of verse 1. Oh my goodness, we could stop there and just meditate on that for the next seven weeks. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You know what he's saying? Prejudice is against everything it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is the reality of our lives. It, it, it's every, it goes against everything it means to follow Jesus. Romans 2.11 says, for there is no partiality with God. God does not look at the human race and show partiality to them. He created every man in such a, such a unique way with gifts and, and looks and colors and sizes. Jesus treated everybody with dignity, and this is what he did. And this is the controversy of Jesus. And if you walk with him, if you see how he walked with men, they looked at him and said, why are you talking to her? Why are you helping that guy? Jesus didn't treat people with partiality, and, and that's God in the flesh. That's who we're to, supposed to emulate, right? Um, if there's one place that partiality and prejudice should never be prevalent, it's in the church, right? It's here. It's among us as believers, and, and, and this ought to be the place that you go to, and, and, and you're not experiencing prejudice. James says it's wrong. It's wrong to reject, pe- reject people based on their outward appearance, the Bible says. Now, there's some common areas of discrimination. We see this. Looks, right? Uh, they're, 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 how good do you look? That, that's an area of discrimination. How well do you dress? Don't we judge somebody by the way they dress? Oh man, that guy's got some tattoos or some earrings or some 
whatever. We, we immediately judge somebody based on how they dress. Heritage, that's another one. We judge people based on heritage, the, uh, the, their race, their nationality, their ethnic background. And, 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 you know, the truth is this is in every culture. It's been around since the beginning of humanity as, as, as man struggled with the fall. We, we began to look at another man or another woman and say, you know what, I'm better than you because of blank or because of this. Because your accent, I mean, think about the disciples. They were, oh, you're those Galileans. You're uneducated Galileans. Jesus was from Nazareth. Who comes from Nazareth? Nobody comes from Nazareth. That's nowheresville. You know, this is, we, we judge based on heritage, age. That's a new one. You know, we, we, we discriminate based on age. We like people our age, Right? You're seeing this even in, in the, the generational conflicts and, and age discrimination is a growing struggle. We get skeptical of somebody that doesn't, is not our age. Wealth, that's a big one. What attitude do you have towards people that make more money than you or towards people that make less money than you? And there's all kinds of ways to, to, to exhibit prejudice. And look at what verse 2 says. James points it out. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's another failure of humanity, failure of, of sociology, that we make distinctions among one another. And the Bible eliminates these distinctions. When you come to Christ, these distinctions are, are wiped away. This is why we as followers of Christ go to the nations. We go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We don't just go to some nations. We go to all nations. This is the call we have as believers. But here's how this scenario plays out. Two guys, they, 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 they're strangers. They come to church at the same time, James says. They're visitors. They, and, and the reason we know they're visitors, they don't know where to sit, right? If, uh, God forbid we ever have somebody that visits our church and, and comes in and sits down and someone walks up and goes, hey, you're in my seat. Get out of my seat, you know? That's happened before. Oh my goodness, that should never happen. Don't ever let that happen. Um, please. Um, but this guy comes in, he's, the Bible says here, he's, he, he's literally gold-fingered. He's wearing fine jewels. And, and you know, in the New Testament times, you, would, you, you could rent jewelry. It's not unlike today. I guess you can do that today. I've never done that. But, uh, but you could rent jewelry to show how wealthy you were. And, and, and these, these, this guy comes into church in fine clothes. And, and, and he probably likely had that Roman toga on. He was probably a politician running for election, maybe. And this poor guy comes in, and it's obvious he's poor. I don't know if he had bad hair. I don't know if he smelled bad or had no deodorant on that day. I don't know if he didn't have his shoes on. I don't know, but James says, hey, a rich guy and a poor guy comes in. Everybody knows it. What they do, they put the rich guy in the nice place, Hey, we want everybody to know you're here. You're important. We put the poor guy, hey, sit under my footstool. It, it, this is like the ultimate put down. Hey, you just sit, sit over there on the floor. We don't have a seat for you. 
And James is going, this is, this is a problem. It should never be. Now, now, prejudice, what does it do? Prejudice overlooks God's plan in the life of a person. You realize that God has a plan for every life. God carefully knit you together in your mother's womb. He, before one uh, day was started in your life, he wrote that day in a book. Oh my goodness. Prejudice overlooks God's plan in the life of a person. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. He's talking to the church here, right? He's not talking to the lost people. He's talking to brothers. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you, are, are the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, now what he's not saying here is that, he's not saying it's, it's uh, good to be poor and bad to be rich. That's not what he's saying in James 2. You know, everybody in this room is rich. We live in the United States of America. It's the wealthiest country in the world. Everyone, the poorest in the United States are rich in the United States of America. All you have to do is travel I mean, my son's in Nicaragua right now, and, and we're cracking up because we tried to talk like five times yesterday, and the internet keeps breaking and stopping, and Eric called me and said, hey, Dad, sorry, the whole electricity went out in this coffee shop, and it was just gone, and uh, we're like, welcome to a third world country, right? The fact that we can drink water from the sink in there, we're wealthy. It's not saying that... It's good to be poor and bad to be rich. He's saying that wealth in itself doesn't deserve any special treatment. Your value is not based on your valuables is what he means. Don't confuse your net worth with your self-worth. Basically, outward appearances don't say anything about who you are. And that's something we gotta remember. Outward appearances say nothing about who we are. Every person has value, and that's a lesson we must never forget. And if we embrace that biblical truth, things like the Tulsa Race Massacre will not happen. But when you read this passage, you also notice that prejudice is a direct violation of God's spoken word. It's a direct violation. Look at verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We see that that sin corrupts our intellect. It corrupts our speech, our worldview, our relationships. Sin, it causes us to... To, to, it causes selfishness to replace love. It causes pride to reject humility. Boy, I feel this in my own heart. It calls, causes partiality to, to diminish generosity. Sin causes the imago day of humanity to get distorted. You know what James 2 reveals for all of us? It reveals this continuous battle with our old nature that we as followers of Christ must always battle. 
we better always battle this. And until, and we will battle it until Jesus returns. Until that moment of glorification, we're going to see this as the doctrine of humanity unfolds. That one day we will be delivered from our sinful nature, but it's not too day. We still have to battle it. Why is it called the royal law? It's interesting. Did you notice that? He says, if you obey the royal law of God, what is, what is, what is James saying? I think it's because if it's the royal law, because if we obeyed this law, um, we may not need all the others. Remember what Galatians 5.14 says? Look at this. I got it on the screen. It says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God's called us to do. Looking down on someone because of appearances is violating this law. And notice the illustration here. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he said, do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. What an interesting illustration. It's almost like he's saying, hey, you know what? If you say, uh, I promise that I won't uh, like try to sleep with your wife, but if you make me mad, I'm going to kill you. What do you say to that guy? Thanks. Thank you for that, friend. No. How many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? How many? One. How many crimes do you have to commit to be a criminal? How many? One. How many links in a chain do you have to break to break the chain? One. Chain's broken. And you know what God is saying? I'm not writing this. I'm not writing this. God is saying to us that prejudice is a big deal to him. And that's why you see all through the scripture this, this push to the church to stop, distinct, stop the distinctions between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, circumcision, uncircumcision. We have this push to understand that prejudice is a big deal to God. Look at verse 12. So, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We're going to stand before God. Now, when we stand before God as a believer, it's not going to be to determine, did we, is our salvation secure? As a believer in Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and your salvation is secure. But let me tell you something. We will give an account for the way we serve the Lord. And without apology, I, as your pastor, we will push one another. We looked at this at the end of Colossians. We will push one another without apology to, to work from our salvation, never for our salvation. Get that right. We got to get that right. The world has to get that right. No one works for salvation. But don't be mistaken. God moves us and convicts us and leads us to work from salvation. Absolutely, he does. And then he goes on, verse 13. For judgment 
is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Man, as a follower of Christ, we show mercy, right? We can't help but show mercy. Mercy always triumphs over judgment, he says. We're going to be accountable for the way we treat people. Love treats people with mercy. So, so, so let's ask the question today, in light of this historic moment in our city, to really deal with this, this uncomfortable, tough question, have we really overcome our prejudice? To overcome prejudice, you know what you do? You grow spiritually. That's point three. We grow spiritually to overcome prejudice. The more we grow up in our faith, God's image becomes clearer. God's image in us becomes clearer. And, and, and what does spiritual growth do? Spiritual growth remembers the unmerited favor, right? That's just another way of saying that, that when you grow spiritually, you remember the grace that has been shown to you. And hasn't God been gracious to you? Boy, I look at my life. When, when the light shines on the heart of Chris Wall, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm just as dark as anybody. And God has shown me grace, unmerited favor. And, and we need to remember our own need of forgiveness. And, and, and when I understand how much I've been forgiven, the less I look down on somebody else that needs forgiveness. The more I'm moved to go, man, I want to pray for them. I want to help them. I want to serve them. I want to walk with them. And, 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 and when we're quick to repent, boy, we, we, you know, we're already memorizing Romans 15, 13. Let's also notice Romans 15, 7. As we look at that chapter to memorize that verse, Romans 15, 7 says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And I feel sometimes the temptation not to accept somebody. And, and here's the reality. Spiritual growth produces spiritual fruit. And to be honest, we're, we're just not such hot stuff, but Christ accepted us just like we are, and that's what's amazing. None of us are worthy of Christ's acceptance, but he did it. In these verses, they say that we're to, we're to accept like that. We're to, we're to love like that. Paul, Paul um, let's remember, I've got to remember this. We are called to engage a world that doesn't think like us. And I'll tell you, this is going to become more and more important for us as a church to figure out how to engage a world that does not think like we think. We're still called to be a church that reaches out to people regardless of race, of sexual orientation, of spiritual condition, of background. That's who we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. Paul, Paul said this is what it looks like. Do nothing out of selfish ambition excuse me, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, mind of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you know what we see? That when it comes to spiritual growth, it's active, not passive. And what I pray that we do is we are active in our spiritual growth. So many people are passive in their spiritual growth. And, and that's not, that's not going to cut it in the world that we live in. That's never been able to cut it. And for us as followers of Christ to be actively growing spiritually is critical for us. So, so are you? Are you actively growing spiritually? I'm not talking about just your head knowledge. Because look, we can, you know, in Baptist churches, we're good at theology. This is our natural bent. We're, we're good at understanding the theological tenets. And that's very important to do. But let's make sure we're understanding theology correctly. And can I give you a little test? I know in my own life that I'm understanding theology correctly when I am becoming more humble when it produces an awe of God, a gratitude in my heart, when I start studying theology and start looking at everybody and going, man, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And those, see, these, the reason I know this is these are things that have come out of my mouth. And that's when I shift into this thing called Phariseeism. And you know what? Spiritual growth is something we're called to do. And as a, as a church, in the times that we're in, and, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I can predict the challenges that are ahead of us. Because when I started as your pastor in 2012, my first time, my first rodeo as a senior pastor. If you, would have set, if you would have set me down and said, hey, Chris, in nine years, let me tell you the gender discussions you're going to be having. Let me tell you the, the, the philosophical tensions that are going to be in the world. I'm not sure I could have predicted these things. But you know what? In spite of the uncertain days ahead, you know what I'm certain about? That God is faithful. That God's spirit is in us. That he will convict us. He will lead us. He will guide us. That his spirit is powerful. He will prepare us. Now, we're going to have to stay together. We're going to have to know the word of God. You know why? Because like Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And the, the image there in Psalm 119, 105 is not a high beam way down the road. It's a, what's your next step? Let's trust the Lord. But this is why I'm convicted to these four pursuits. I guess that's eight, right? Four, four pursuits. Let's pray. Gosh, we gotta pray for our city. That's a call we have to pray for our city. 
to pray for our, our church. We're called to, to know the word, know the word of God. That's the second pursuit. We got to know the Bible. The best way to prepare for whatever lies ahead is, is right here. We got to understand our times. We got to know what's, what the Lord wants us to do, like the men of Issachar, incredible examples for us in Scripture. Look them up. We got to build relationships. I love that we're going to be able to reconnect with our story of our church members and people through this podcast that Casey and Misael are putting together. Oh, man, that's going to help us know one another. We've got to build relationships with the lost. You realize we we're called to that, right? To build relationships with people that don't think like us, don't act like us, don't believe like us. We're to build relationships. We're to build relationships with one another because we can't do it alone. We have to have accountability. We have to have um, the strength of, of brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's what I know. That fourth pursuit, to yield to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will lead us. And folks, it's just like what I learned year, uh, a few months ago when I went to Voice of the Martyrs. And I sat with those leaders and I said, man, I cannot believe that Richard Vermbrandt, he, he stayed faithful to the Lord in that cell. You know what that leader of VOM said to me? He goes, ah, it's not surprising at all, Chris. He goes, God doesn't give you dying grace on a non-dying day. It dawned on me, that's Right. God always gives us what we need the moment we need it. So let's not look at the, the things that are developing in front of us and have a sense of fear and doubt and, hey, let's, let's step up. I'm thankful I had a dad that looked me in the eye. He's a coach, he's a tennis coach. I mean, I was a tennis player. No one ever looked at a tennis player and said, man, don't mess with that guy. He's a tennis player, right? <laughs> but I did have a dad that said, hey, if somebody bullies you, man, take a stand. Let me say something. As a church, a bully's coming. But hey, God's taught us how to take a stand against the devil's schemes. Lord Jesus, I thank you for how your word convicts and confronts. Lord, I thank you that you, you'll never leave us or forsake us. Father, on this mark in our history, I pray that you, the God of hope, will fill us with joy, with peace, in believing in you. Lord, we believe in you. Lord, I pray 
that we would overflow with hope. Not in our own power, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, lead us. Move us. Use us. In Jesus' name, amen.